Don't you hate it? This social distancing mask stuff. Every other day, I think this whole thing's a crock. And then the next day, I think we're all going to die. So I put on my mask like everybody else. I do the social. And then not only do we have a pandemic, we've got an election coming up. More division and hatred I have ever seen. And then <laughs> and then, what kind of Thanksgiving are we going to have? Sheesh. And, and stores are closing. You can't go to the movies. You be, it's, it's just awful. And I hate it. And I've told the Lord that several times. And I've asked him, are you listening? This is awful, and it's you. And then I realize it really is that he's sovereign and that he's good and that he knows what he's doing. So it's good to come apart even if I can't hug you. It's good to come apart even if you have to stay six, weeks, six feet or more away from me and me from you. It's good to be together and remember and be glad. Scripture says, be still and know that I'm God. Praying for you daily, for your staff and for whoever the new pastor's going to be. It's going to be interesting what a sovereign God does in this church that I love so much. All right, let's pray and then we'll get down. Father, we're here, scared sometimes, lonely sometimes, afraid, sinful almost always, prideful, but loved by you. Father, we're not here because we're good. We're here because you are. We're here by invitation. You know everybody here. The demons that come in the middle of the night. The footfalls that we don't hear anymore and nobody to wind the clocks the loss, the sin, we're here. In this place, may we hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. And as always, we pray for the one who teaches that you would forgive him his sins because they are many. We would see Jesus and him only. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We make a big deal out of the Last Supper, and we ought to. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is the blood 
of the new covenant which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. We teach on it and think about it and live in it, and we ought to do that. But between you and you and me, that was not a pleasant supper. I mean, the cross was yet to come. There were a bunch of fearful disciples, and Jesus himself was facing something he didn't want to do. So when he said, this is the last time I'm going to do this with you, before we do it in heaven, it was, it was sad. And, and being sad is understandable. Lament is a part of the Last Supper. But sometimes we don't spend a lot of time in the last breakfast. The torture's over. Death has been conquered. Everything is finished, and I mean everything. There is great joy and rejoicing, and now it's time to have breakfast. My mother, and I can close my eyes and hear her say it because she said it so many times, son, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. That may be right, I'm not sure, but I know one breakfast was the most important. The most important, not of a day, of days and lives and years and centuries. And so this morning we're going to have breakfast with Jesus. And uh, as an aside, and as Gus said, this is the last text in the Gospel of John. We started it just after the Noadic flood, and we've learned a lot. And this is it, the last text and the last breakfast. If you have a device or your Bible, you might want to open it to the Gospel of John to that last chapter. And I'm going to start reading at the uh, 15th verse. And this is what the Apostle John writes. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said it to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, uh, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, in a minute, breakfast, but before we go there, I want to go down two or three very important side roads. And I want you to note first, in the words that I just read to you, um, lesson in humility and an illustration in humility. <laughs> Peter, and if you... If you go to the 26th chapter of Matthew, Jesus has just told his disciples that they're all going to run, heels and elbows, and leave him bereft. And Peter said, oh no, not me, I'm your man, I'll stand. I'm willing to die for you. These guys maybe, but not me. And in that context, you see what Jesus is doing. And you have to add some parathetical comments to get the flavor of it. Jesus looked at the others and said, Peter, do you love me more than them? Really? And Peter knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And he knew that he, like them, had fled and sinned. And there was a sense of repentance and sadness in him, a humility that was learned, but was learned the hard way. And then don't fail to check out that when John refers to himself, and you've heard this a thousand times, when John refers to himself in that book, that he wrote, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. 
He never uses his name. <laughs> I would. I mean, if I could write a book that would be a bestseller for all time, I want my name on the cover. And not only that, I want the royalties you get from selling it. I'm tired of my Honda. I want a Mercedes. And I want to buy a new house and live in a better neighborhood. I want, there's a lot of stuff I want to do. You better believe my name would be on the book. But not John. Because he learned from another John. John the Baptist. In the third chapter of this book. And John the Baptist said about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. He, he wasn't talking about another rule. He was talking about a natural happening in the life of a believer. I wish I could introduce you to my brother, Ron. You'd like him and he would impress you. He was the district attorney in the 28th Congressional District in North Carolina, had the highest conviction rate in the whole state, was on the governor's council. He'd be the governor if he had lived uh, of North Carolina. Now, I firmly believe he was my closest friend and I miss him. And even now, years later, when I talk about him, I can get teary. When he ran for the district attorney place, he ran against an incumbent. And I helped him with his media campaign. Now, you need to know my brother was a Democrat, and I'm a Republican. And the only good thing about his death is that he now knows the truth. They didn't laugh in the last two services when I said that. And I think they were thinking, I can't believe he said something like that. It's a joke. Um, but I ran his, some of his media campaign. And I used to go with him to his rallies. Gosh. Sometimes, I mean, he was so, so much charisma. I mean, people just loved him. And sometimes, and I was always sitting in the back, I wanted to jump up and say, hey, that's my kid brother. Is he something else? Does he shine? I never did that, but I did on occasion say to somebody sitting next to me, uh, that's my brother. Isn't he something? That was natural. Love does that. Admiration does that, and Jesus does that when you hang out with him. You know what's wrong with our country? I'm going to tell you. I have a former student who said after another presidential election, and my pastor last Sunday said, I don't care who you vote for, 160 million people will disagree with you. And I went, whoa. And then he said, what are you going to do about them? But you know what's wrong with this country? Self-righteousness. It really is. 
I mean, we've set aside a true revealed theological truth about depravity, sin, forgiveness, and redemption. And if you no longer have that, you don't have an option. The option is, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm pure and you're evil. I'm good and you don't have the right to exist. Self-righteousness so different than Peter and John and every Christian. I'm praying for a new pastor. And I'm praying that when he comes, he'll be broken. And he'll know that God didn't call him. He was good. God called him because he wanted him to serve Northland. You can tell. And you can tell in me, too, when my peacock feathers are flying in the breeze. Somebody says, how was the sermon? And I say, I was taking notes on myself. It was so good. When that happens, you know I haven't been hanging out with Jesus because the natural result of that is the increase of Jesus and the decrease of us with great joy and freedom. Then there's another thing I want you to notice in the text, and that is the danger of rumors. Let me kind of tell you what had happened. It had, it had gotten around that Jesus said that he would return and that John would live and still be alive when Jesus returned. And then everybody began to notice that John was getting old. <laughs> I'm as old as dirt, and he was older than me. He was having trouble walking right and saying the right things and remembering the right things. And he was, you know, he was having the aches. If it didn't hurt, it didn't work. He was going to, and they were looking at him and think that sucker's going to die. So Jesus must be coming really soon. And then John died. And faith was shattered because of rumors. Let me tell you something before I tell you something else. I'm straight, so straight you wouldn't believe it. I've never been to a strip club. I have never been to a pornographic website. That's not because I'm pure. It's just because my other sins are greater, and I'd rather do them than those. So I'm not bragging, but I, you need to know that that's not where I sin. I served on the board and executive committee of Christianity Today for a hundred years. And during the time I was there, we published an article anonymously by a fairly well-known preacher, at least he said he was, who traveled the country speaking. and spending time in strip clubs and looking at pornography and sinning deeply and profoundly. And in this article, and it was well-written, he confessed all of that and asked for people to, to pray for him. I thought it was a cool article until I started getting letters. People thought it was me. 
I really did. I don't know why that is. Everybody thinks I'm out of the box, and I'm really not. I had an associate once that said, if, if I was in another city and reading Playboy magazine, somebody who knew me would see me and be shocked. And the difference between you and me is that if you were reading a Playboy magazine, nobody would be surprised. I don't know how that happened. I really don't, but, and frankly, I don't care. I get a lot of criticism, and uh, when you get old, you can say whatever you want and offend whoever you want to offend. But I was a young pastor, and that's, that's pretty scary that people thought I was visiting strip clubs. So I went to the president of Christianity Today, and I said, you got to help me out here. you got to write a letter, because I'm getting letters from all over the country. You got to write a letter to say I didn't write that stupid article. And he did, and I did, and I sent it to everybody who told me they were praying for me. That's what rumors will do. Uh, they can. I used to work for a radio station, and there was a there was a slogan that we repeated often. Let me give it to you. First, get it right. Uh, no, get it first, but first get it right. That's a good policy. But first get it right, but that's hard. In fact, it's almost impossible. You don't know anybody else's story enough to get it right. You don't know the powers that were railed against them. You don't... You don't know the blood they shed trying to keep from falling. You don't know the sleepless nights. You don't know the pain and the work before they went into the darkness. You just don't know. And you don't know what's happening here in America. Only God knows. And whatever you think God is doing with them and with us and with you, he probably isn't, because his ways are circuitous. And so keep quiet, unless you have to say something. Notice what Jesus said to Peter when they were walking away. Peter said, <clears throat> what about him? And uh, Jesus said, what is that to you? Follow me. How could he vote for Donald Trump? Arrogant, insufferable, wrong. How, how could any? What is that to you? Follow me. She's voting for Biden. He's a crook. He doesn't know what he's doing in all these years. He hasn't done anything of any importance. And Jesus says, what is that to you? Follow me. Did you hear what he said about me? What is that to you? Follow me. But I've been rejected by those folks. They don't like me. They demean me and disrespect me. What is that to you? Follow me. So John wanted to straighten people out. 
because he knew he was going to die soon. He was cramming for finals, and there was going to be real problems. And then there's one other thing before we go to breakfast. I want you to note in the words that I uh, read to you that a Christian witness, by its necessity, is brief. I was at a board meeting of a ministry in Philadelphia, Harvest USA, and I love those guys. They deal with sexually broken people, and everybody is. And uh, we were having a board dinner one night, and the president of the organization, it was a dumb idea, decided he wanted all the staff members to give their testimonies. I was already tired. I had flown to Philadelphia. I just wanted to go to bed. But they started talking about what Jesus had done for them. And there were 20 of them. And they went on and on and on. We started at 5.30 or 6, and it was 10.30, and they had 10 more to go. I decided, you know, is it better for me to sit here and snore and fall asleep, or should I slip out the back door? So I slipped out the back door, went to the hotel room and felt very guilty. And I said to Jesus, I'm so sorry. I just couldn't stay awake. And Jesus said, I understand. I left a half hour before you did. Listen, everybody here's got a story, but you don't have to give everybody the whole load. I teach students to preach. And I say, the problem isn't a three-point sermon. It's a three-sermon sermon. When you have to tell them everything you know about that subject, you don't have to do that. Neither do you. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so, and you don't know the half of it. Our forgiveness is so complete. Our secrets so horrible. Our acceptance so full that you just can't say it. Oh except briefly, always saying, and you don't know the half of it. Hey, have you ever been at a breakfast or a dinner, a banquet or a church service and thought, uh, I've got no business being here? If they knew me, I would not be invited. Well, if you've ever felt that, I've felt that on a number of occasions. <laughs> it's hard to do what? I'm the most religious person in this room. All I do is religious stuff. I write religious books and do religious lectures and go to religious conferences and speak. I teach religious students to be, I'm the most religious person here. And I have my secrets, and I sometimes think, if they knew this is insane, then I'm standing before God's people and doing that. And you know who can identify with me? Peter. Oh, 
on steroids. Can you imagine? The, la the last time Peter had seen Jesus before the cross, it had not gone well. He was in the garden of the high priest, and he denied Jesus three times. And that's not the worst part of it. In the final denial, he turned the air blue. I can't even use the words in a sermon. And said, I told you, I don't. And at that very moment, Jesus was being led through the courtyard, and Jesus' eyes met the eyes of Peter, and Peter wanted to die. He had heard every word. What shame. What, what guilt. And now he was going to have breakfast with Jesus. If you think Peter wanted to be there, you're out of your mind. And yet it was important that he have breakfast with Jesus. And it's important that you have breakfast with Jesus. And for the same reason. First, it's important to have breakfast with Jesus so you can see uh, a great love for great sinners. I'll tell you something. This is not a wonderful bunch of guys. <laughs> if they lived in our time, our canceled culture would have canceled them a long time ago. There isn't any HR department in America that would hire a single one of them. You know, the two brothers, the sons of thunder, the motorcycle gang members, and then you got an arrogant twit who was a philosophy professor, didn't have a lick of common sense, and Peter, oh my. I mean, he was always doing something really stupid, and then that fat thing, the final thing, that was, well, that was just too much. And yet, they're there. Does that say something to you? Of course it does. It says that Jesus likes bad people. That's what it says. You didn't know that, did you? You're trying so hard to be good, it's screwing up your life. Jesus likes bad people like me and like you. Because the Bible says it's universal. No exceptions. Jesus likes bad people. My late friend Jack Miller used to say, and I agree with him, the most repentant person in the congregation should be the pastor. And after that, the most repentant people in the congregation should be the leaders. And I agree with that. I was one time... There was a guy who criticized me publicly, and you would know his name if I told you, but I'm not. And I was spitting angry, and I thought of a joke that I could tell about him, and I could hardly wait to get into the pulpit of my church to tell the joke. In fact, I had introduced the illustration and was getting ready to let him have it when the Holy Spirit said in Greek to me, shut up. And I thought, what? Just shut up. 
Now that's hard after you've started down the road to get back without making a fool of yourself. But somehow I was able to back up and get over it and through the sermon. When I got back to my study, I said, Lord, what was that? And he said, that's because you're worse than he is. And I love you a lot. Oh, have breakfast with Jesus and you'll discover his great love for great sinners. But you'll also, when you have breakfast with him, as Peter learned, you'll learn great sensitivity and wisdom for great sinners. When you look at these questions that are that Jesus asked the same question three times. In the Greek, the first two times, the word is agape, and that's disinterested love. It's what Karen Horney, the Harvard debt psychologist, used to call mother love. It's the love that says, I'm going to love you even if you don't love me back. I'm going to love you no matter where you go, no matter what you do. And that's the word that Jesus used the first. The third time, he used philia. Philadelphia, brotherly. In fact, he was saying, will you be my friend? Are you my friend, Peter? Now, I don't want to make too much out of that, but I do want to make something out of the fact that Jesus asked three times. Why did he do that, do you think? Because Peter had denied him three times. That's why. He was doing this for Peter's sake, not for Jesus' sake. Peter, for the rest of his life, would remember the three denials. And every time he did, he would remember the three affirmations. You know I love you. That's, that's healthy. That's sensitive. That is very wise. I have a friend, he's a former fighter pilot, big as a gorilla, tall. And his name's Lee Clower, and he spells his Lee like a girl. So it's good he's big, because <laughs> I'm sure he's kidding about that a lot. He called me one time, and he's one of my closest friends, and I love him more than I can tell you. I'm thinking of 10 stories I want to tell you, and I don't have time. But he, um, he called me, he said, I'm going to make a fortune. I said, how are you going to make a fortune? He said, I'm going to market bracelets and T-shirts. And I said, you're kidding. He said, no. He said, do you know those bracelets they used to have, the What Would Jesus Do bracelets? That's from the Sheldon book, What Would Jesus Do? Uh, In His Steps is the name of the book. And they had these bracelets that had WWJD and t-shirts and they put it on Bibles and everywhere. He said, I'm gonna do that, but I got a different one. Mine is widget. I said, widget, what's that? And he laughed and said, it means where is Jesus in it? Good question. I I don't know your stories, but I know some of them have been dark. Abuse, doubt, pretty bad sin, Uh, addictions, things you can't get out of, you lost your husband, the divorce, 
the child who was killed in the automobile accident. Widget. He's there. That doesn't mean it's not dark or that it's wonderful. It's not. But it means that everything in your life, no matter what it is, reflects the wisdom that you can see at the breakfast with Jesus. God is bringing you into a place where he can use you and where you can laugh and sing and dance in the presence of a sovereign God. One more thing. I'm getting hungry. Aren't you glad? <laughs> when a preacher gets hungry, it means he's going to end. One other thing, when you have breakfast with Jesus, uh, when you have breakfast with Jesus, uh, not only do you see his great love for great sinners, not only do you see uh, that, his great sensitivity and wisdom, you see the great commission for great sinners. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed has to do with truth. Tend has to do with love and compassion. Have you ever thought you're not good enough to serve him? That you'll sit on the back row. I have friends who do that. They come to church and sit on the back row and leave during the final hymn so nobody will see them. You ever feel that way? That you've just worn out your welcome and that he can't use you? Stop it. The people Jesus loves and uses are sinners. And that would be me and you. Every time God uses me, and I might say every time he makes a fool out of me, but every time he uses me, I am blown away and think that is so cool. I can't believe that. Uh, and Jesus says, you're all I've got. I don't have anybody but sinners to use. I have Ray Cortez, the pastor of Seven Rivers Church over in the west coast of Florida. I love him a lot. He, uh, I was there preaching one time, and uh, he was installing and ordaining elders and deacons in his church. And there was a bunch of guys up front. They called them to come forward. And, and he turned to his congregation, you know what he said? He said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this is the best of the bunch, and that's why we chose them. You're thinking that these are the most spiritual and mature of the bunch, and that's why we chose them. That they're the most obedient, and that's why we chose them. He said, don't you believe it? We chose them because they're the worst of the bunch. And the difference between them and you is that they know it. So when you have breakfast with Jesus, you find out he loves sin. And this isn't a brief for sin, by the way. It's a brief for holiness. It's the only way you get there. 
Jesus' great love for great sinners, his great sensitivity and wisdom for great sinners, and his great commission for great sinners. Truth, speak it. Love, give it. Let me tell you about another friend. I got weird friends. I really do. <laughs> I have, my staff says I attract weird people. Well, maybe I do. And then they say, you know why? Because you're so weird. But I've got a friend in California who has a wonderful ministry to mentally ill people. And he has that ministry because he's been there and he's done that. He went through, um, he's a pastor and he, his name's Jim Stout. Uh, and he's incredibly uh, effective with men and teenagers. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And then he had his breakdown and it was awful. He left his wife and kids. He was living in his car, dark, deep clinical depression. And when he came out of it, he used every bit of his pain in the name of Jesus with other people. And it's amazing. But when he was going through part of his worst time, and that's been years ago, he wrote a poem. It's not great poetry, but it is great poetry. The title of the poem is Where's Pete? The angels have trumpeted, the hour has come. Awake, O Christ, the victory's won. Your triumph is glorious, all hell's at your feet. What? What's that you say? Where's Pete? You mean Peter who failed you, that proud, pompous man who measured his faith by the muscles in his hand? He sadly has spent three miserable days, and now that you're riven, risen, his life is in a daze. He's more than a friend, Jesus says, though it is true he failed me on Friday and other days too. But while in the grave my body at rest, I held on to Peter, prayed for strength for the test. And now that I'm risen, my power over the dead is proof of the truth of all that I've said. Now high on my agenda, once up on my feet, I gotta find Simon. Tell me now, where's Pete? Peter, Lord, I'm here. I didn't think you would come. Come to me after all that I've done. And then when it happened and you were dead, I just gave up trying and turned from the shame. I've failed and I've stumbled and I've cursed your name. Peter, I love you and have given you my power. Whenever you stumble, just remember this hour. You remember Jim Baker. He did some bad things and they were very public. Uh, they uh, went to prison. I'd been on his television program. The publisher sent me, I didn't choose. 
That was before he fell, and then he fell, and really bad things happened. And really good things happened too. Now, I don't know what's happened to him. I'm not into what he's into, but I liked him a lot. And I was the first one to interview him on my television show that I was doing in those days. Uh, I, uh, I told him that a bunch of us had prayed for him the day he went to prison and we watched him being drugged off in chains and in tears. And he started crying. And I said, Jim, what have you learned from all of this? And he said, I've learned I'm free. I can go anywhere and speak to anyone about anything and hug any unlovable people because I don't have anything more to protect. I don't have to pretend about anything anymore. I'm free. You are too. If you listen to what I've taught you. You think about that. Amen.